right, welcome everyone to the SciComm podcast. Today we have all four of our hosts. We got Al, Kathleen, Evan, and myself, Trinity. And we are also joined by our dearly beloved friend, Adam Lee. And he's going to talk to us about fish or something today. I don't know. Evan, what is he talking about today? Uh, yeah, so I believe Adam is going to be talking to us about his master's work down in South Texas, where, as far as I'm concerned, it mostly involves shooting a bunch of fish, cutting them open, and looking at their ears, their spines, and their sexy bits. I'm not sure about their spines so much as there was their ears, but yeah. Wait, it's got to be sa- it's got to be more scientific than that. I'll I'll let him get into it because I'm not a fish person. It's it's a uh, it's not strangely enough. Uh, so hi everyone, uh, it's such a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's uh, wonderful to see these wonderful people once again. Um, so the way I know all of our hosts is I worked with them closely in a series of different uh, graduate student labs at uh, the University of Texas and Rio Grande Valley. Um, I worked closely alongside Al in the uh, artificial reef program and Evan was my across the hall lab mate alongside Trinity and Kathleen was our fearless project manager slash all-around utilitarian goddess so pretty much you uh it was fantastic in that respect um so yeah a little bit about can what... you change that to can you real quick uh, kathleen can you update your uh your linkedin profile to have that utilitarian all encom- like was that. it all, all encompassing <laughs> utilitarian, utilitarian goddess? goddess yeah <laughs> that's pretty good i think I like that would it. be appropriate and unique yeah, and for sure. And my handle is Gobi Princess, so it just falls right in line with that. For the listener, so getting back into it, for the listener, um, Adam's project was probably some of the most fun that we had in the field. Uh, as Evan said, that we, we got to actually catch the trigger fish. Now, Ad, maybe you want to tell us about the different methods that you had to trial out before settling on the one that worked the best. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the thing about the project I was working on is that there are there's one big major fish that is fished in the Gulf of Mexico for the most money, and that is the fish known as the gray triggerfish, which is not true. It's the red snapper. Um, and as a consequence, I know I did lie to you. Yeah. Sorry. I had well, a he, little... just, he wants it to be the gray triggerfish. I do so much, although my research suggests that that may be a bad idea. Um, however... Yeah. <laughs> The the most prized and most uh, valuable fish in the Gulf of Mexico is the red snapper. And in order to catch red snapper, you use these large circular hooks called circle hooks. And this is because when red snapper eat, they swallow their food whole, which is cool. Um, Similar however, to Al. Yeah, kind of like Al. Yeah, oddly, actually, yeah. Oddly, the consumption yeah. method of... Hot dogs only. <laughs> The consumption method of most graduate students mimics red snapper. It's sort of open mouth as wide as possible, swallow whole. That's how they they get us into the seminars. They're just like, it's like kind of like a bandit reel with the hooks. But on the end of the hooks, it's either pizza or cookies. Yeah. We got donuts for you today. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes cupcakes. Yeah. So unlike the fish that is very valuable, the fish that I studied is the great trigger fish. Now, uh, they look a little strange. They look a little flat like a pancake cake and a little football shaped and instead of swimming with their back tail they swim with the tail that's on their top and on their bottom so they have a strange variety of motion however they are found in exactly the same environment as the red snapper down in south texas 
And so because of this, when people go fishing for red snapper, oftentimes they will catch gray triggerfish as a consequence, even though they're not targeting them. So Texas. So would, would you real quick, would you consider that bycatch? Well, I would probably consider that bycatch. I would probably consider that bycatch. And it doesn't necessarily fall into bycatch in the idea that because um, Red snapper are not fished using nets. Unlike most people, when they think about bycatch, they think about the stuff that gets caught in nets alongside other fish. Right. Uh, red snapper are specifically targeted with fish hooks. Um, and even though my study fish, which was gray trigger fish, were not intentionally targeted, they were caught as a consequence of this. Right. And so the people at Texas Parks and Wildlife were interested in knowing what the populations of gray triggerfish looked like on the artificial reef sites where people were regularly catching red snapper as well. Because over time, those gray triggerfish populations had seen a significant decline and were considered both overfished and experiencing overfishing, which are just two big fancy terms for saying that we were taking too many of them out of the ocean and not letting them make enough babies to replenish the amount of fish we were taking out. Which is which is interesting is considering that they weren't uh, what you would consider a non-target species, right? Yeah, so the funny thing about non-targeted species is oftentimes they are less well-regulated. So Obviously, most if at, if at all, if at all. So many people uh, who have gone fishing know that there are oftentimes catch limits. So how big a fish is, or how small a fish is, in order for you to take it home with you. And oftentimes there are also a bag limit. So how many of the fish of that size you can take home. Now the thing with gray triggerfish, at least in our study area, was while they had a size limit. They did not have a bag limit. So you could basically catch as many big fish as you want and take them home with you. Now, if you're a hungry fisher person and you can't catch a uh, red snapper, but you can catch gray triggerfish, you can see how this might lead to a situation in which these fish were being really depleted really quickly without them having the opportunity to grow their populations back again. Right. And, and for the for the listeners that aren't um, sort of more in tune with this kind of work, fisheries is a, is a really difficult thing to uh, to regulate, even for species like red snapper. It's it's kind of like managing something that you really can't keep an eye on. And so anything that you do, you're you you're really trying to take a snapshot of of that population and trying to understand how uh, our our ex sort of our fishing and the, the pressures that we put on them, how that affects the overall kind of the structure, what, what ages of fish there are, you know, how, how well they might be reproducing and how well they might be maintaining their populations. And so, uh, so the, the kind of work that Adam's doing is, is really important because it's sort of linked um, this one, you know, targeting of this one species. And it was showing sort of some of the, uh, the ecological, like Adam said, consequences or, or side effects of, of targeting one specific species and, um, and how that might impact the species that it also lives with because it doesn't live by itself. These populations aren't isolated in any way. They very much live in an ecosystem with other species of fish. And so this was a, this was a really important, this was really important because it sort of added to this body of knowledge saying that, you know, there are side effects to what we're doing and that, you know, even if we may be looking for one thing, you know, other, other populations might suffer uh, because everything's sort of pretty well connected down there. 
yeah, to some degree. That's a that's a great point that you make, Al. That uh, the reason why these fish were of interest was not necessarily because they were directly targeted, but they were indirectly targeted. Um, so you can think right. about it a little bit like secondhand smoke, but for fisheries impacts instead. And right. and so for my project in particular we were tasked with taking a snapshot of the age and growth as well as the reproductive status of these gray triggerfish on the artificial reefs in the study area we were in in South Texas. Now, I mentioned before that red snapper are usually caught on a hook and line, and in order to standardize, so make the same every time you do it, the way that you do a population estimation, there are rules that are set down by the state and federal government that say the way that you can do this. And you have to use circle hooks of several different sizes, and you have to fish for a certain amount of time. Now, this is a really great way to catch red snapper and other commercially valuable fish. It is a really bad way to catch gray triggerfish, which we found out the hard way after doing quite a bit of sampling with these uh, long lines, which are just exactly what they sound like, long fishing lines with multiple hooks on them, and catching no triggerfish. And Kathleen and I, uh, Kathleen and I got to Kathleen. I think you went out on some of these trips, right? Or had you not got back yet from? Oh yeah, I've been going on the, yeah. because yeah. I remember we would take we would take. So uh, for those that don't know, so you know, doing the field work in this part of the country, uh, in that part of the U.S. Uh, real meant getting in, you know, loading up a boat at about six, seven in the morning and taking about a two hour uh, putt out to the, the sites that we were working at. And then an additional, you know, few, uh, bit of time to set everything up. And then, you know, fishing, we you put a line in the water and you sort of wait to see what happens. And um, and so, yeah, what, what were some of the differences? What, what why was it harder to catch triggerfish uh, than it was to catch red snapper? So it comes down a lot to the way that the fish's body is actually constructed. So if you look at a red snapper, it looks like a traditional fish that you would draw if you were like in middle school or even a child. They look like fish. They've got a I tail. I think most people. Yeah, most yeah, people. Most people would draw. Would draw it yeah. Same. yeah, it's got a tail. It's got a big open mouth. It's got fins, right? And as I mentioned before, the way that they eat their food is they open their mouths as wide as possible and swallow their prey item whole. Now, if you look at gray triggerfish and you look at the physical structure of their face, instead of having a big wide open mouth like a sea bass mite or a bass mite, they've got a beak kind of like a parrot. And because this is called gape size, basically how wide they can open their mouths. And the feeding style of these creatures is essentially that they take very small bites of things or they take crustaceans and crush up their hard shells. So they've actually got really, really sh kind of uh, imposing sharp teeth and they're very unpleasant to get bitten by. However, they just can't open their mouths wide enough to latch on and swallow the hooks that are designed to catch these other types of fish. So we had to improvise. <laughs> we did have to improvi improvise, but I'd like to point out too that with triggerfish, uh, one of the, the other aspects of them sort of being physically 
constructed in this way, like having this um, these beaks was also related to sort of where they inhabited uh, the, the reef structure. So where a snapper might be, you know, further off the reef and they might sort of be swimming around it, uh, triggerfish would be a lot more closely associated because all of the things that they eat are pretty much living on that structure or they're scraping it off, eating barnacles, things like that, that would be attached on that structure. Whereas the snapper, especially when they get bigger, they might be eating things like shrimp that might be swimming or worms out in the mud or other smaller fish, things like that. And it's just kind of, even though they, they lived in the same exact place and they would sometimes get caught together, they sort of fulfill different e like ecological roles within the ecosystem. And when it comes down to the, to the food, all the prey items that we attach onto the hooks, all the bait, the triggerfish actually nibble onto it. So they will nibble they do, yes. on the bait, but they just don't, you know, get a large enough mouth, a large enough mouthful to actually hook, um, hook onto it. Now I have a little bit of a story to look at their beak-like features. Um, my very first introduction to going underwater in South Texas. I had just arrived. Oh, I yes, remember so I this. I had just arrived. We did one or two dives on some deep ships, and then we did a five-day stint in. A bit further north, we were going on every single day on the boat for four or five days in a row, and we were doing underwater surgery. So we we're underwater with like little fishy, like kid pools, like kid fishing pools underwater. We were catching snapper, or that was the hope. And then we were cutting open a small hole in the red snapper, putting a tag in, and sewing it back up so that we could track the movements with the tag of red snapper. Now, while doing this, Triggerfish will try to nibble on anything that is white. And for all those listeners that don't know, the deeper you go in the water, our skin basically turns white. We lose the ability, or the red light doesn't actually go as far down as we can. The water actually removes the red light. So as we go deeper and deeper, our skin looks super white, just like or squid. White or like... blue, purple, yeah. Yeah. And... All of us, right? So we're like underwater. We can't really move. We've got a fish strapped to a table. We're like suturing it up. We have to be really careful and not move. I got bitten on the forehead five times in three days by these trigger fish. And like Adam said, it's like a beak. It felt like they were scraping my skull. It felt like nails on a chalkboard, but you feel uh. it. Oh, and well, then, and for oh, the, for no. the listener that doesn't know, Kathleen has beautiful, very fair complexion. So she was um, she was the main target, and and to a certain degree, bait for the uh, for the triggerfish. So True, we I did talk say, about putting putting Kathleen down on the structure to catch triggerfish at one point in time. It could work. Um, it Green. could work. But also, my colleague, whose project we were doing all of the surgery for. He is Hispanic, so he's got darker skin, but underwater, even that looks very white. And so he would get bitten on the forehead. He would, you would just hear him scream underwater so loud, <laughs> such a loud scream, but he's not allowed to move. Poor Andres. Right? He's poor like, Andres. Up. Yeah, poor Andres. Such Lovely a good, guy. Such a good human. This. Oh. Oh, so yeah, man. triggerfish, their beaks hurt so much. Their they teeth, do. They're mean. Look them up. L listener, I, I look them up. You can look up either the gray triggerfish or the what's the Titan triggerfish? That's the big one in the in the Great Barrier, right? Yeah, that's mm -hmm. or the Queen. 
well is queen trigger fish yeah picasso trigger fish yeah, is picasso yeah the those whole... things are huge does it only have one ear stop it trinity Wait, that's a different guy. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> that's Van Gogh. That's, that's Van, Van Gogh. Gogh. Whoops. Sorry. Yeah. Let's Van Does he have, go away from this subject. Do they have melty subject. clocks? That's a Picasso no, Trinity. Ooh, burn. My um, bad. Sorry. On top of all of these things that we've mentioned about them having sort of sharp teeth, and uh, the other thing that's interesting about this particular species is that they're also considered fairly inquisitive, and they're also uh, more than willing to investigate things that other fishes would just not be uh, happy to hang around. So when you're diving, you're essentially a giant, loud, stinky fish that scares away most everything, except for a few different kinds of species, triggerfish being one of them. For some reason, they do not seem to have any kind of aversion towards divers. They will happily uh, swim up to you and nibble on you. If you have exposed skin, they'll bite your equipment. They'll poke you. They're just, they're sort of like... They're like really ugly puppies. They kind of are. And <laughs> I, I will note that for the gray triggerfish, so for again, for the listeners very interested in the biology, Ballistis capriscus, right? Uh, ballistis, uh, yeah. It, That's ballistis hilarious. capriscus. Yep. And so they have this re- really gnarly uh, dorsal spine, like a really thick spine that they'll put up, and that's a good deterrent for predators. They're also really bony fish with kind of leathery skin. And it's not like, you know, for a lot of other fish on the reef, that's not the most appetizing option, you know, for you. So they kind of have these built-in defense mechanisms to make them not very, you know, attractive to most bigger things like sharks or bigger fish that might be swimming around the reef. Um you know, to go after. So it makes sense that they're not really, they're not that scared or averse to, to big stinky fish like us. This fish is so ugly. Yeah, it's... No it one is, would eat it, it. It's not a, it's it's got not really a good cool looker. coloration, though. Yeah, it does. I'm making a joke. You don't have to defend it for the joke. Oh, I'm defending it, Trinity. I've seen the insides of most of them, and uh, they're inter- they're morphologically interesting for lots of reasons. Um, in addition to that spine being really gnarly and a predator aversion tactic, if they do ever run into things that are willing to eat them, since they're flat like a pancake, they'll wedge themselves in between things and actually stick that spine up as like a lock. So it keeps them from being yeah. pulled out of those crevices. So that we saw that. We saw that with uh, the triggerfish on my cinder blocks. They would wedge themselves in between the cracks between cinder blocks with their spine up and would just sit there. It was the craziest thing. You could try to run up on it. You could even like pet the fish because it just wouldn't move. It was it was really interesting. So a few weeks ago, there are I was very fortunate. I could do field work. Yay! So I was at the Great Barrier Reef for two months and No big deal. We were going to the exact same site every single day. Every day swimming past this Picasso triggerfish. It's a small one. Obviously, it started growing and growing. And basically, they stay in this one area. And they will always be very close to this one hole that they like to hide in. And so progressively through the trip, the fish was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And every time we swam over him, he would shove himself in the hole. But he wasn't, he was getting too big for the hole. So he just kept like shoving himself in there and just like half sticking out. It was so great. That's so funny. Yeah, and my friend was studying ostrich. the Picasso triggerfish. The ostrich fish. fish. The ostrich fish, yeah. She was studying them last year. And so they would the collect them that. and then put them in aquaria for a little bit to study them and put them back. 
And she would say to catch them, all they had to do was just scare it into a hole, and it would just be stuck half out, out, and they would just take it out with his hands. No need for Aww, anything that's else. It was so just funny. picking them up by hand. So funny. Well, we... Well, Adam, we tried we tried giving them kind of a hole right after the hooks didn't work. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so that's a that's a good uh, good moving on point. So one of the things that triggerfish really like to do is go into small spaces. They makes them feel happy and safe. Uh, so after the the hooks didn't go so well, we decided that instead to try fish traps. Now many of you can visualize uh, a lobster trap, sort of those one of those ye olde wooden and uh, net contraptions. Now we had something similar, but ours were a little made of a little bit more modern materials. And we spent a little time deploying these things, uh, either very close to or a little further away from some of these artificial reef structures we were sampling on. And that also only had moderate success, um, in part because triggerfish behavior dictates that they stay very, very close to whatever structure they live on. Um, they're a little agoraphobic of open water, and rightfully so. They can't swim very fast. Move. What's agoraphobic? Oh, mean? shoot. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, agoraphobic meaning they're afraid to go out of their homes. Yeah. Wait, are we all agoraphobic during this pandemic? No, well, not in maybe. Florida. But, I mean, um... <laughs> speak for yourself, but I am. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So after our uh, experimentation in deploying our fish traps, we were able to catch a few individuals in this manner, but we still were not having very good efficiency in deploying and catching animals at a reasonable rate. So I was very fortunate to work with a team of incredibly talented, smart, and uh, well-versed people, especially in local species. So we were having a discussion in the lab one day. Um, I'm not 100% sure who was there from memory, but um, one of the uh, one of my advisors came in and he said, just shoot them. And we all looked at him. I think that might have been Richard Klein. I think, honestly, yeah, probably Dr. Klein uh, said just... I think seems like a Rick Klein thing. Yeah, it seems like yeah. a it seems like a thing that fits his personality. But uh, uh, Dr. Klein, but Ethan was... and I were also we were after the baskets and we saw it wasn't really working. I think Ethan and I had this discussion too, and uh, and I think we talked to you about that as well, saying like we think that maybe, well, yeah, we first. catch them a different way. Yeah, Without catching them a different way. We'll never know. Oh, who knows? <gasps> yeah, well, we'll they're Adam. the same. I'm kidding. <laughs> same. Oh no. <laughs> Yeah, so essentially we, we settled on utilizing spearfishing in order to catch these, these, these organisms because it allowed us to non-selectively target essentially large, uh, large numbers of individuals um, in an efficient way yeah. as well as do it while we were doing other research. So I'm not sure if this is a topic you all have covered before, uh, but research trips are expensive uh you try as yeah. much as possible whenever you go out on the water to do as many things you as you can with the time that you have available to you so while some individuals were doing surveys of the organisms we were seeing others of us were trying to shoot gray triggerfish um and usually usually the surveys happen before, before yes of and course then, uh, <laughs> and then we'd we'd shoot the trigger fish after yeah so we we had some we were much much more successful uh sampling uh trigger fish in that way 
Um, it also happens to be a lot of fun to go spearfishing. Um, so we mm -hmm. all were very fortunate to, you know, at least give that a try once or twice. Some of us very successfully, some of us not so much. Uh, I'm not the world's Ow. best shot. <laughs> Hang on. I, I, I was very successful at catching triggerfish. Oh, yes. Other fish, other fish maybe not as much, but triggerfish I was quite proficient. My, well, we'll get into guy. it, but let's, uh, before guy. we do, before you, we do, I'm just you saying. You took me spearfishing, and then you were like, you, you decided that maybe we would only need to explain what kind of fish and, like, how big the fish should be, like, what was legal, after we were under the water about 60 feet. Oh, is that what happened? I don't that's remember what, that specific that's incident. <laughs> uh, yep. He... We basically we basically were we swimming had... around and he would just point at that one and then I would I would point and we would like hopefully be pointing at the same fish. And one you time we weren't Well, I have what, I have what? two distinctly <laughs> delightful uh, anecdotes with uh, t that I recall spearfishing with both Al and Lay with Kathleen. Um, so uh, Al is actually a, a very competent spearfisher. Um, however, on occasion, equipment fails. Uh, that is just the nature of the scientific uh, scientific endeavor. And that's a very diplomatic way to say. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, so we we had purchased spear guns for the program in order to sample fish of all varieties and sizes. And on occasion, when we had a little spare time at the end of the day, we would hop into the water and see if there was anything worth you know catching for dinner. Graduate students are not very that was legal within our legal limit. Absolutely, and we weren't. Yep. Yeah, we're not. So uh, to to clarify that point, uh, we doing. would Please. only collect um, we would only collect specimens for which we had permits, which we were fortunate enough to obtain through legal channels. We were not poaching these fish. Um, we wanted to make sure we were fishing ethically, fishing responsibly, as everybody should be doing, using the proper equipment. So in times when we did have a little bit of spare time at the ends of these trips. Um, on occasion, we would go spearfishing for our own dinners because graduate students are not paid very well, and fresh fish is a great way to get. I know, right? Yeah, uh, it is a great way to be uh, well nourished. Uh, one of the best fish to both spearfish and to eat in South Texas is known as an amberjack. It's a very large predatory pelagic fish. It's beautiful. They get to be quite. No, quite... what's pelagic? Oh, pelagic means they swim in open water. My mistake. Here we go. Mm -hmm. They're they're pretty and uh, fishermen love love to go fishing for them because they put on a fight and uh, like you said they're good eating and uh, they're just fun to they're fun to fun to target. They are fun to target and um, well, Al being uh, a consummate and well versed spear fisherman decided that uh, an amberjack was going to be his target of the afternoon. Um, so with a a spear gun in hand, uh, I think they're about four and a half foot long, he decided to have a, a little chase of this amberjack and lined up what was amounted to a, a pretty good shot and, and fired. Now, the thing that you have to understand about water is it's not like standing on land. Um, there is no inherent friction. So if something pulls or pushes you, you are going to be pulled or pushed with the approximate force of whatever that object provides. And in the case of a six and a half, seven foot large predatory fast swimming fish, 
that just got a, you know, two and a half foot metal pole shoved through its head. It decided that it wasn't going to take that lying down. So it took off with all of the equipment. Yep. Yep. Oh, yeah, I'll jump no. in. So uh, just for, okay, so in my defense, we were doing our safety stop, and uh, which means that we were, we were safely coming up out of the water and letting the nitrogen get out of our system. And uh, I was with Ethan. Uh, this was the this was the first first incident. I was with Ethan, the and uh, we incident. couldn't dive. Wait, 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 wait. So uh, we were on our first safety stop, and typically it's uh, you should clip if you're gonna shoot something this big. You need to clip your gun to something, uh, which at the time that I didn't, I hadn't gone for anything that big, and I didn't think, and I didn't clip the the gun on. So I shot the fish as it was coming up to me on the safety stop because they kind of circle you. And uh, and it kind of did a little flick, and I'm not gonna lie, it's a really big fish. Didn't feel like getting pulled back down, and I let go of the gun and the f- had to watch the fish swim away with a bolt in its head, trailing Ethan's gun into the abyss, which was oh. pretty, which was pretty uh, gut wrenching because, um, I, you know, I killed something I didn't have to. I lost my friend's gun. I polluted. It was bad. It was a really low moment. Um, and yeah, we made was... fun of you for the rest of your life. It's right, still right, but to this day. Can and you then... imagine, like, did it did it die immediately? No, it would have uh, bled out for no, many because, hours. Because I'm thinking, like, if, something would have eaten it fisher, though. Something would have eaten it. If a fisherman caught it and just like brought up, like, <laughs> that's a bonus. All of a that's sudden, a, it's just like, well, oh, I got an amberjack. And a spear fishing and gun. And a spear gun. Yeah, yeah, that's it's true. We replaced. We did replace Ethan's gun. That was uh, that was silly. With really now sharp the teeth. I think when when everybody really clamped down on me was the second time uh, I tried to make this happen. Now the second time I clipped. <laughs> now here here's the thing. The second time I clipped the gun to a float, and was a lot more like, okay, this is how you do things. So I shot. I shot the fish. The fish, you know, took off, but I, you know, was able to let go of the gun safely let the fish tire itself out. It was only upon handing the gun with the connected to the line, connected to the bolt that's through the fish, handing the gun up to the boat so that we could recover this fish that the line snapped. And I had to watch for the second time a fish with a, like a two foot bolt sticking out of its head, swim off into the abyss of the Gulf of Mexico. Now that I, I don't, you know, that's like half my fault. I think. Um, well, if it broke fully the my line, fault for shooting the fish, but uh, not so much for. I don't know away. if that's your fault. Like, did yeah, you did you like line. pre-cut the line? No. No. Uh, oh, wait, so, I did. Although it, I did hand I, the, there, I did hand the gun I up. It. I handed the gun up to Doug, who's a militant vegan. So it could be <laughs> that wait. he had some vendetta, you know, against this, and uh, and maybe he cut the line without me knowing. So. I have a I, I, I have a Doug related movie. story about Triggerfish, actually. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Do you okay, mind if I tell my my Kathleen anecdote first? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Go please. ahead. So the other wonderful anecdote I recall from being in South Texas with Kathleen is we were on we were out on a field day helping one of our other uh, fellow uh, compatriots. Uh, complete their study trying to utilize sonar to identify fish species. And so to do so, we needed to collect specimens of all different um, 
different formats. So uh, fish that were large and round, some that were skinny and long, some that were sort of fish-shaped, others that were a little kind of blockier. And I recall distinctly uh, sitting on the end of a a three-pylon oil rig that they had cleaned and tilted over to use as part of these artificial reef structures and sitting on the end of this pylon with uh, with Kathleen, both of us spear guns in hand, literally just sort of sitting on this uh, on the end of this, spear guns pointed out, and just kind of like looking at each other and confirming whether or not this next fish was going to be a, a, a reasonable target. And um, and Kathleen uh, in in a comedic moment pointing one of these spear guns at a very large barracuda. Um, if those of you who are unfamiliar with a barracuda, they're seven foot long apex predators that are... They're seven foot long mouth. It's like a mouth with a... That's just it. A mouth and a throat. Yeah, a mouth and a... what they are. Really sharp they're teeth. Really, really so sharp. Incredibly so powerful the, swimmers. That's, that's the fish that hit Marlin in Finding Nemo, Yes, right? it is. And it killed is. all of Nemo's siblings. Yes. Um, and his mom. So, and his mom. There we go. So Don't I recall, forget his mom. Something to Disney, relate the mom it to. died. Yeah, so I recall sitting along with Kathleen and just sort of sniping fish out of the distance, and it was quite lovely because that was a that was a wonderful day out for sure. <laughs> we sound like cold-blooded murderers. I just want everybody to know that again. This was for scientific research, and they did we did make a lot of use out of it. There's a whole thesis and paper that followed several. Oh and, yeah, and, I, rem- yeah. I remember getting so many good meals off of you. <laughs> Shh, heaven. <laughs> I, what? I, like you said, once you, once you get it didn't them, go to waste. they them. didn't go to waste. No, not at all. They didn't yeah, go at all. You use them for research, and then it's like, well, we've got all this meat, so what are we going to well, do with and, it? And as a quick little tangent, it surprises me how often uh, regulations prohibit people from actually eating, like eating these fish that are that are caught, and they just kind of they just get thrown away. And uh, there's a there are some places where that's part of the regulation is you sample. Um, you know these populations, and then just throw throw away everything that could be eaten or donated or something. Um, it's I think it can be quite wasteful if if it's not sort of regulated well. That wait, that's a regulation against like scientists. Sometimes for, for sometimes when you have permits to do these kinds of sampling, because you're sampling so much more than like the recreational limit. For whatever reason, for whatever reason, they because it's science. They don't want you to be right. able to sell it. Yeah, essentially, they want you to be, yeah, yeah, be able yeah. to profit off of your your endeavors. See, yeah. These 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 are sort of regulations that I don't usually deal with because like nobody eats salamanders nukes. because your yeah. salamanders well, are yeah, poisonous we, sometimes. Except for the witches, yeah, we, we, the witches have we, the you know, <laughs> witches need to be <laughs> be heavily regulated. Only so much I, I have yes, newt to go around. Please. Yeah, I mean, we can we can yeah, talk no, more that, that, about Evan's uh, black market warlock trade later, uh, if need be. Yeah. Black black spotted <laughs> new warlock trade. <laughs> so, <sighs> all right. So did did Kathleen did Kathleen try to shoot this this barracuda? No, actually, she instead. Yeah, she. I think. In, I think instead she chose to uh, to take out a, a a sheep's head, which is a very common sort of um, tropical fish that is structure associated. It has human like teeth. They taste really good. It looks actually similar teeth to in similar ish to the trigger fish. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. So we had a very successful not, not quite trip. As intimidating. My, yeah, my... I don't like sheep's head. They're creepy. <laughs> my, they are kind of creepy. My best. Related to sheep. Yeah, but they're not related. They're not really at all. Um, my stop it, Kathleen. 
Yeah, my best spearfishing shot ever was on that particular dive. I sniped a rainbow oh, runner out of the blue. And yes, that's right. It was just, so great. I remember that. It was, it was I think, a beautiful moment. I think we were just like, should we just, we both pointed it and we're just like, let's give it a go. Because we had to get, you know, all different shapes of fish to yeah. see if the sonar would actually pick it up. So just, why not? It was a beautiful shot. It was, because these fish are yeah. really skinny, right? So they're really skinny they're, and long, and you and really have fast to swimmers. get a good shot. Yeah, they're yeah. fast swimmers. You have to really plan it well, and he got it first go. It was great. So, okay, so how skinny is the fish in comparison to the bolt that just plunged through it? Uh, oh, I mean, the bolt, it's like an arrow. Yeah, it's about the same yeah. diameter as like a recreational like archery arrow. Um, the fish itself mm-hmm. okay. is about... Oh, maybe a... I think it's, like, as wide as, like, your forearm. Or is that too skinny? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. that's I mean, about like, right. It's an easy thing to compare. Well, I was thinking, like, a little thicker than a pack of cigarettes. Yeah, so, like, like basically... That no, does not mean that. That. that you should... Bigger than that. Go get a pack of cigarettes to see and how much it. it is. Yeah, you, actually, you I strongly shouldn't. I strongly advocate actually, for the destruction of cigarettes. <laughs> because yeah, yeah. it's a horrible addiction and arrows. it's a waste of money, my dudes. Yeah, you could uh, you could shoot arrows at packs of cigarettes to practice. I think that's okay. My, buy yeah. comic books instead if you want to waste money. Or D&D books. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or donate to charities, guys. You know, you could just throw your money there. That's, that's I was trying to be funny, and now you got to be buy, gotta make me feel guilty. Buy Al more, yeah, more yeah, scuba gloves. Like... If anybody wants to donate to Muscle Reef Restoration, you can reach me at Shellfish Restoration. I'm just kidding. We have a Wix yeah, site. Or, or, you know, don't, donate, to, donate to other fish research groups because then you're donating to more fish shooting. Yeah, absolutely. Just don't say that. That's not true at all. Evan. Speaking of... Well, speaking of... Well, don't give it to amphibian conservation. They're just, they're just walking around licking newts. That's all they do with their money. No, we don't do it that one time. often. That often. That's why there's yeah, so that, many, not, not that so many missing tropical, uh, tropical tree forest uh, amphibiologists or herpetologists. Excuse me. So I'm particularly right. interested in hearing about Doug and Triggerfish because for those of you who yeah. have not oh, had yes. Doug described, he was a a man built in the in the same format as the 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 old greek statuettes of heroes he was a very yep. well shaped you know conan yeah if you've seen conan the barbarian but imagine yeah but imagine conan the barbarian's physique in the gentle southern in, in a in a gentle southern farmer yeah exactly so, okay that's also so, a militant okay. vegan yes so <laughs> so doug um interesting man Interesting man, great hair. Um, great hair. Great hair. Awesome beard. There's a lot that can be said about Doug. He loves the environment. Maybe we'll have him on here one day. Um, very, very beautiful southern accent as he is from North Carolina. He's a great dude. I lived with Doug for a year, uh, like my last year in Texas, and we had a good time. Doug and I were under the water because we were, you know, doing the research and diving. I really don't remember whose research it was. It doesn't matter because I was there to hold things underwater and to make sure that no one died because I was not a marine biologist. And I still am not. Praise 
God. Um, <laughs> so yeah, you get to light stuff on fire. <laughs> so anyway. I get to light stuff on fire. Jeez, I feel attacked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could talk attacked. all about us. We could call it, talk all about us killing fish. Trinity sets whole forests on fire. So <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, yeah. who's the who's the real oh, no. villain? Shh, shh, shh. Don't worry. <laughs> shh, shh. It's for the nature likes it. Nature likes it. It's fine. Um. Anyways, Forget so he got legs. Um, that's also the wrong time of year. Um, but anyways, not in Australia. Uh, I am anyway, in Australia. Okay. Okay. Can Walls I, are I, functionally extinct. Anyway, continue. Can I? Thank you for bringing this down, Al. You're welcome. I just um, wanted to bring it back. So you and Doug anyways, were underwater. So you were Doug making sure he wasn't dying. Yeah, I was making sure he wasn't dying. Um, and we were doing something, and we're very safe, this... by the way, guys. Diving is very safe. You don't have to worry about like. She's kind of just joking. Just yeah, so no, I I was there. kidding because you can never, safe. you should never dive alone. And so like, his function, like he was actually doing the science, and I was just there to be his dive buddy and like hold things and help him with stuff. Um, like holding things, like, like I don't know. Checking yes. his air anyway. Holding bags. Sampler. A lot of I bags. Don't know. I, I yes, a lot of bags. Um. Is this because I was a woman? Anyway, I'm just kidding. Whoa. Um, whoa. <laughs> whoa. We're not. Let's not. No. We're not. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Doug okay. would actually be That's so hot about that, I think. Um, he would be. He'd be hurt. Yes, he would. He would. I'm sorry, Doug. Um, anyways. So there was this it's really fine. curious flat gray fish that was coming towards me. And I was like, oh, what is it? Oh, my goodness. It's a fish. Am I going to touch it? And it's a trigger fish, a great trigger fish, of course. And so it's like coming in to try to bite me, because um, fans, listeners, Spyro, Spyro, we've never met, but I am so, 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 so white, um, above the surface of the water, and I am bleached coral <laughs> underneath the water. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> On a like, scale from one to bleached coral, <laughs> yeah. Like I am, anyway. I am so white. I am like, shh. I oof. It's mm. Mm. yeah. Anyways, mm-hmm. so it's coming towards me, and I'm like gonna reach out and touch it because I don't know that they bite. Wow. And so I was gonna reach out and touch it because I was like, I'm gonna touch a fish today, and because I'm just having a good old time. And then Doug just he just like puts his big old mitts up, and then he just like boxes it away from me. <laughs> I love that. I love that the that the vegan the vegan is 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 beating fish away from you. Look, he saved me. I will say me. it's actually a really good method. When we were underwater trying to, you know, like you do not have move to punch the fish in, away. We would punch it because it and it would just it keep coming for a second. Look at us and just keep coming. Yep. I love Trinity. You were just so innocent and wanting to touch a fish, which. You know, not ideal potentially, but oh my gosh, you would have gotten your finger probably bitten off. Nobody was gonna stop me except for Doug. So, well then, I'm surprised he didn't then turn around and just give you a little punch to be like, wake the up. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Moo, moo, bleep, 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 bleep. Kathleen, Kathleen, I'm gonna. We all know what that one means. Oh, do you oh, guys have man. a fun expletive noise that you edit in? <laughs> oh, that'd be so good. Not yet. Not yet. We can do that. Could be this episode. Yes. Yeah. So, 
So getting on with it a little bit, you guys. Sorry for the no. second time. Um, <laughs> you stop. You moo you. Um, so Adam, so we we finally discovered that shoot, you know, doing the spear fishing was the most effective way. We had a lot of great stories. So many uh, of collecting these fish. A lot of fun. Uh, honestly, made us all quite a lot better divers too. I felt like because we we had to get really comfortable, you know, doing these things underwater. Um, and uh, yeah, and then you so you took them back, and what did what you find? I mean, what, what's it looking like for these fish at this point in time? Yeah, that's a, a a great question. So after we would collect these fish, we would go through and process them as soon as possible, um, within twenty four to forty eight hours of them being captured, and we would look at three major metrics. The first being how big the fish were, the second being how old they were, and then finally how well their reproductive organs were developed based on those other two things, which were basically their age and their size. And the way that we did this was a little non-traditional, just like our capture method. So great trigger fish, because they're a weird shape, Normally when you take the age of fish, you can use a bone that is sort of the same as the bones that you and I have in our inner, inner ears. But those bones basically record, like in tree rings, rings for the ages of these fish. Now the problem with gray trigger fish is they don't have these inner ear bones, so we had to use some other part that accrued rings in the same way. And that gnarly spine we were talking about earlier is a great way to capture that. So in processing the fish, we would take some weight and length measurements. We would also take that first spine. It's called a first dorsal spine. It's just the first spine on the top of their head. We'd break it off, take a very, very thin cut of it, like so thin you could see through it, stick it on a slide, stick that under the microscope and count the rings. And every ring essentially ends up being a whole year's worth of growth. So between the age of those fish, the weight of them, and the length of them, we could approximately calculate how the relationship between their length and their age or their weight and their age. So the next time, if for some reason we needed to catch these fish, we wouldn't have to take them back to the lab and sample them, basically break them down, kill them. We could catch them, measure them, and throw them back. Or even cooler, you don't even have to catch them. That's true. You could That's even true. Just underwater, you can measure them with lasers. Or take photographs off uh, uh, some sort photos. of... Yeah. Yeah, so there's, there's... There's a lot of different ways you can measure them. But you do... I mean, like you said, you, you we would have to kill a certain amount before you understand that relationship yeah unfortunately right, yeah so so my introduction was yeah fine. it was perfect you know, ears ears yeah. maybe not a thing but the spines and the gonads. yeah absolutely oh that spine you i thought yeah. you meant the vertebra that when yeah. you said yeah, spine no. you know what i thought no, you meant vertebra you're right. too yeah so it's yeah. not the... no you're right adam, evan evan adam knew what i was talking so, about evan is so right i'm so, so right. sorry uh, they have I'm not. I I remember seeing some of those slides. Yeah, so yeah, they were cool. Interestingly enough, the way that you validate, so the way that you make sure that you're being accurate with your spine counts is actually to do a comparison with a section of their spinal column in taking a vertebra and slicing it into pieces. But okay, yeah. So yeah. the other thing that we well, measured was their reproduction. Look at how smug Evan looks. Yeah, the other thing that Very Evan's like. Smug. Yeah. Listeners, you obviously cannot see him, but he's got a really smug face on right now. I didn't know that part. So smug. It's just because he knows what he's talking about. Really quickly for listeners. I just said spine because I remember the spot. Anyways, continue. Please. Wow. To clarify, officially what we're talking about for spines, 
Imagine they kind of have a spine just behind their head, kind of like a unicorn, but it's actually attached to the dorsal fin. It's probably mm. easiest way. And it's they retractable. also have a spinal they also have kind of like a spine like us, like a vertebral column in a sense, but we're talking about the spine just behind their head, sticking up. Yeah. Thank you. That's a that's a good point of clarification for sure. Um so, fish. Yeah. <laughs> so in addition to their age, weight, and length, we also measured their reproductive output, which is essentially how many babies these fish were capable of making and during what time of the year. And then we took those reproductive metrics and tried to tie them to their age and their length as well. And now this is a, not an uncommon fish. It's got a distribution all across coastal Atlantic waters. However, the area we were studying, they did not have a good metric particularly on the environment we were working with, which was the artificial reefs. And so essentially and I that's got... That's a really yeah, go ahead, Kevin. point. Um, it's important to sample fish in different areas because the environment they live in might really change how they grow, how fast they grow, how old they are when they're caught. How fast they reproduce. Yeah. Kind of right. the, what, the availability of food, stuff like that. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, so there's this environmental variation that's really important to always think about. That's why so many times scientists are doing similar studies, but in different areas. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent, excellent point. Um, and one of the things we were able to find is we know a lot about this fish because we've had it uh, classified for a long time. People have done studies on it all over the Atlantic Ocean, um, as far away as in the Mediterranean, and as far away as in Brazil as well as the coast of Africa, as well as in the Gulf of Mexico itself. Because again, since it's caught so often with these very valuable species, it's a point of interest. So essentially what we were able to find is a couple of things that were not necessarily good news for our triggerfish. The first thing being that almost all of our triggerfish were young. So almost all of the triggerfish we were able to capture were between zero years old and five years old. Now, if you're a so fish, teenagers. Yeah, so basically, basically teenagers. So triggerfish have been known to live as far or as long as ten to fifteen years. So we were seeing fish in the f basically the first third of their lifespan. In Why is that a problem for fishing? That's a, a good Why are young fish so bad? That's a great catch? question. So one of the other things we were able to find is that they're, they were producing the, approximately the same number of eggs as other fish populations or other great triggerfish populations in the area. But generally, the thing about fish is the older they get, the bigger they get. And the bigger they get, the more babies they can make because they have more space their organ their reproductive organs are bigger so normally what we see is that younger fish have a reduced reproductive capacity meaning that every year when a fish is small it cannot produce the same number of offspring even if there are lots and lots of young fish compared to very very few older fish because those older fish have just much, much larger reproductive organs, and they just have a higher reproductive capacity. So what we were able to see and is... And how does that affect populations? So, so why does that matter for population-wide Yeah, that's, a, that's another good question. So especially for the population we were looking at, it affects it in two ways. 
The first being that the fish that are being taken out are not being replaced at the same rate. Because if you catch a certain number of triggerfish and you don't replace them with stock, they just don't come back. So their population tends to drop. The other thing that's problematic is because these fish are sort of afraid of going out in open water and moving away from their structures, it's really easy to target them all the time. And so if they cannot reproduce very effectively because they don't get very, very large because they're being taken out of the water really quickly, it essentially means that no matter how many fish you have, they are never going to make up the difference in reproductive capacity. So even lots of lots of young fish is not the same as, again, few older fish. And when you don't have those few older fish to bolster the population year over year, any small changes in the population size due to fishing or environmental conditions or predation can really impact the whole structure of the population, which is bad. We don't want and to the lose these and fish. The community and the community as well, yeah. right? The community that they're associated with. Because if you're changing, you know, if you have a lot less bigger fish, that might also change, you know, what things that they're eating, what things are they're, you know, going after. And so you can really have these uh, indirect effects that sort of, uh, stem from from the removals of these fish uh, that that really can negatively imp sometimes negatively impact you know the, these uh, these reef communities which we don't necessarily want to happen because the whole point of putting these artificial reefs out there is to stimulate diversity right and it's to create habitat for a bunch of different kinds of fish to live in yeah additionally what we found after doing a little bit of digging is that all of the populations of triggerfish all throughout the gulf of mexico are related to one another which makes sense because most of the time if you're an animal and you live close to another animal of the same species it means that your genetics are pretty similar but the thing that was a little troubling is that the triggerfish that we were catching were most closely related to those further up the coast. And as you went along the sort of edge of the Gulf of Mexico, their distribution and the closeness of the relationship decreased as you followed the current. And so it was likely that our fish acted in part like a, a, a source of triggerfish larvae that were distributed along this stream this this current and so if you imagine a circle and you were to start cutting out a small portion of that circle flowing around and keeping those genes continuously moving through that circle becomes harder and harder and so eliminating this population or even reducing its availability to distribute genetic information makes it so the whole population in the Gulf of Mexico, which is lots and lots of the fish, yeah, the metapopulation becomes less genetically diverse. And most of the things that we know about suggest that if you have a low genetic diversity, you're less likely to be robust in situations that might harm you. Environmental changes, again, pressures from uh, particularly toxic ocean and oil spill, you know, things that happen in the Gulf of Mexico on a Good pretty thing regular that basis. Will never happen. <laughs> and these kinds of things where the where populations have become too related together. 
that has really depleted a lot of populations. Think of cheetahs, yeah. I think, for example, right? They've gone too related, and they had to actually... We humans had to intervene to try and make them less related for them to be able to survive. So it can have huge consequences if we get rid of some key populations too quickly. There was a little bit of good news, though. So we had not really seen up until recently with my work, as well as some other papers that were published from the area, that suggested that the artificial reefs were utilized by these fish all the way through their lifespan. So what's great about that is that we know that these artificial structures are being utilized by fish not just in their infancy, but all the way until they're adults. They use them as breeding grounds, and so they become really productive as environments. And um, one of the things that people were concerned about with putting artificial reefs in places where they were not before is the idea of collecting fish to a limited resource, like collecting fly uh, moths to a, um, like a light bulb. And then, unfortunately, like these... stealing them from other areas. Exactly. Right? So you're stealing fish. The thought was that they were stealing fish from other areas, natural areas, and all the fish would hang out in this one area. And unfortunately, unlike the moths with the light bulb uh, scenario, it would be as if the, the moths were not moths, but chicken nuggets. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Because the thing with these fish is that people like to eat them, they're a valuable resource. And so aggregating them in one place without them being, without the, the environments themselves making more fish, more biomass, would be really yeah. problematic. Because we don't want well, to redistribute unnecessarily the kinds of organisms that are there naturally. And, and to kind of go off of what we were saying before about how, you know, this is kind of a side effect of the snapper fishery. If you ask a lot of people, especially a lot of old timer or, or, or seasoned fishermen, a lot of them will report that triggerfish is one of their favorite fish to eat. Right. And so, I mean, because people don't normally go after them and that it is a treat when they do get them and because they're not really that heavily regulated, um, you know, that's it kind of like is one of those things that kind of can go under the radar you know and so it's just like you know it's what it's important to understand sort of these indirect effects of of what and how we use the resources in our oceans and i mean this is one species this is an example of one other species that this is happening to um think you know if you think of of the the myriad of the of other fish that are that this is happening to you can imagine how the consequences can mount and uh, and can really lead to uh, catastrophic effects that that um, that combine to to negatively impact the things that we you know that we like to go for. So, you know, understanding how this happens to triggerfish might be a sort of a siren, not a siren call, but a, um, a almost like the canary in the coal mine, as it were, uh, for other species as well. That um, that you know allow us to understand better understand our impact and our relationship to the to natural resources in the natural environment. Sometimes so. that's called an indicator species. Exactly. Indicator species. So scientific of you, Trinity. We can learn some vocab sometimes. Al brought up some really excellent points, right? Using these species to learn more, and perhaps even have an idea of what might happen to other similar species in the area. And I think I want to go really quickly back to Adam's point that he mentioned the really good news that triggerfish will actually stay on the same reef their whole life. Why is this such excellent news? Well, the thing is, in areas like the 
northwestern Gulf of Mexico, off of Texas, there's very, very little natural reef. So putting down artificial reefs, the thought is you might be able to have a lot more fish living in the area. And because triggerfish are not leaving a particular reef, this means if you produce, if you make a lot more artificial reefs, you will end up having a lot more populations of triggerfish. And so fishermen are taking triggerfish quite quickly, even young fish, if you have at least more opportunities for more populations in the area, then you might not be depleting the populations of triggerfish as much as you would once think. Yeah, I think, Kathleen, you make an excellent point. So we do want to just see more fish, and we've been so fortunate to be able to deploy these reefs and see exactly that happening. That and it's not just gray triggerfish. We saw an increase in general fish pretty much in every place that we've put down reefs and that we've been keeping track of them in the northwest Gulf of Mexico for many years. Um, you know, now what we're trying to figure out is how to manage them correctly and how to make sure that those populations that we've sort of seeded, that we tend to them and we grow them in a healthy and sustainable and manageable way so that they continue to be, you know, uh, um, sort of, I was going to say foundries, but that's the wrong word, um, nurseries and, and sort of a foundational collection of environments to really help build up populations of fish that start their lives at the reefs, spend their whole lives at the reefs, or are even utilized by fish passing by. You know, and this this yeah. goes for a whole number of species. And while I hope one day great triggerfish become an, in, uh, an index species or an indicator species, that would be really lovely. I don't know if anybody's confirmed that yet, but if you can, uh, mm. it, it's not bad news if you can see a gray triggerfish on your structure. Maybe that's why you should go Except back and get skin. a PhD, Adam. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> Just going to put you in the hot seat. Adam, for the listeners, Adam's one of the smartest people I know. And oh, that's it's very a, kind. It's a, darn sh- it's a darn shame that he hasn't started a PhD already. Because the world would benefit from it. Well, that's and his crazy rants. Adam, I just want to excellent work. Thank you. He's a wonderful teacher, and his students love him. I'm sure. So, especially with all the crazy stories that you've got, they are always very interested in my anecdotes, particularly when it involves adventures with you, Al, because you and I have had (laughs) quite a few. We have. Interesting experiences. Uh, the one that the students are particularly uh, fond of is our um, uh, koala adventures in the, the very intense currents off going off the structures when oh, yeah. we so yeah spider yep. when we spider personed our way it was yeah. something uh, well, so quick excellent. quick little anecdote um before we wrap up the show today um because th- i think this is adam's again adam's research working with adam we always got into some interesting little little side quest as it were and i believe we were looking for a submerged receiver on a deep on a on a deep reef and so we had to do we had to make sure moo, we were doing receiver? a safety stop boo yeah moo it what's was, a receiver uh, it was basically like a Pringles can that communicated with the tags that ta- Kathleen talked about so that we could monitor movements. And we were swapping them out so that we could download the data. And the current was ripping. It was terrible viz that day. And we had gone on a pretty deep dive. And so we had to do our safety stop. The problem was because the current was was so was so ripping that um, that when we got up to the near the top where the buoy was, 
the combined weight between Adam and I, along with the current, had pushed everything down and pushed the whole buoy down about 30 feet. Now you do your safety stop at about 15 feet, so you can see how this is a bit of a problem. So what we ended up doing is we took one of the reels that we used for the search line, and we started sort of, we connected it to the buoy underwater, which was again at 30 feet, started slowly spooling it out, and then it got stuck. Meanwhile, Adam is hanging off onto the back of me. I'm hanging onto the reel. We're still about 20 feet underwater, which is on the cusp of where you want to do your safety stop. Uh, running out of air. And so I thought, okay, well, I have another reel. So with one hand, I, I tied my, my safety reel off to this other reel, which was tied off to this buoy, and slowly led us up to about 15 feet. Adam was Adam was riding the tank, and I was, you know, holding on. And uh, yeah, and it was a... Interesting little experience. We definitely were like, maybe we should put more floats on next time. Uh, I think was the uh, I think was the learned was the lesson learned there. Yeah, that um, was a but... that was an experience. Um, that was certainly my one of my more unpleasant at the moment, but very funny yeah. in hindsight diving experiences in South Texas. Yeah. Um, certainly one of the, the highlights of my experience. We managed it. Yeah. We managed the risk very well. Neither of us panicked. Yeah. You know, we sort of, we slowly came up, we were safe and we got out of the water just fine. Yeah. I, um, I remember, and that's just because. <laughs> I, remember yeah. being, wow. I remember being on deck and the both of us, so the way that the, the boat was set up is there were two racks of benches facing one another where you could put your tanks and your equipment. And I remember remember we sat opposite of one another and just kind of gave you know when you have those middle distance stares with people when you <laughs> when you've been through a harrowing experience yeah. and we just kind of nodded at one another and the uh, other people on the boat were in the process of bringing the buoy up and i was like make sure you get those reels it's got yeah, two reels yeah, of make exactly. sure they get al's reels because i was very thankful that those pieces of equipment were with us that day because <laughs> i have a yeah. distinct feeling we would have not ended up where we belonged no, if we had, that's the other thing too. If we had tried to do a, uh, if we'd come off of the structure, um, it would have been really hard. We would not have stayed in the same spot. We could have ended up a mile away from the boat by the time we got up uh, above the water. So, um, we did. We also it was between staying attached to the structure or sending up a, a an SMB, which at the time you know some uh, oh, oh. submersible marine buoy. Um, it would have basically signaled to the crew, we're underneath here, follow the flag, but we didn't want to set off any alarms since people were expecting us to pop up in one spot. But, I have uh, done that before. When the buoy gets dragged under, I just send yep. up, it's called SMB, but it basically looks like a blown up pool noodle. And you it's a safety surface. sausage. Yeah, safety sausage. For those that don't know, it's super bright orange. It says diver below. And then that way the people at the surface can at least... You know, can see where the divers are, and then they can know, okay, well, that's something that we need to yeah. pay attention to because there might be a problem, or for my don't case... Run them over. <laughs> yeah, don't exactly. run them over. Yeah, that's a... That's, that's a, true. That's a, so, as a, as a person who spent a lot of time on deck trying to monitor everybody's safety, um, it is not a good... It's not good news when you see one of these safety sausages come out of the water. That usually means something has gone a little off the off the boil. Yeah. Um, it means yep. that everybody's really got to be on their sort of best, most alert, attentive, attentive and themselves. I want to. Yep. I just want to put it out there, on the record, that Adam is such a dad. <laughs> he is. He was the so dad. He was the lab dad for all of us. When so much. <laughs> when he's doing field work, he's just like when I went like one of my first dives, I was like really nervous, and he was just like he was like 
okay, so this is exactly what's going to happen, and this is what and this is what you're going to do. And remember, these are the hand signals. You don't have a diving computer. Take my watch. Like yeah. this, that. Like. He was great. No, Adam was Adam was great. And I, I was think like, what I loved so, about I was like Adam's was, my hero. He's so he's he's making sure I don't die. This is awesome. It's true. I do want to say, Adam, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been awesome to to follow up and and to just to reminisce a bit about some of the stuff that we got up to. Yeah, it's been it was, um, it's been such a pleasure. Um, it's been such a pleasure to be here. It's been such a pleasure to be able to have be able to talk about my work. Um, to do a little bit of shameless plugging, um, I recently had the extreme pleasure to work and hopefully soon to publish another piece of research with Kathleen. Uh, recording or sorry regarding our uh work not with great trigger fish but with red snapper and hopefully we'll keep our fingers crossed and get that into something pretty soon um Sweet. but yeah it's been it's been a real pleasure and if you really want to read some great trigger fish research adam already got some of his published which is really exciting yeah. so look him up adam lee great trigger fish on google and you should find some good papers out <laughs> thank you very much but it's been such a joy to have you on this show yeah thank really you so great. much it's been good to catch up and we'll have to have a proper proper catch up when i don't have to run yeah thank you guys so much but you hate running al stop it i love it i was gonna say I do like running. Don't say that. He, I'm just he not does. very. He went on a run. He went on a run a few days ago and found his buddy's lizard. I did. I did. That's another story. That oh, was a weird. That was a weird thing. Another time. Yep. Yep. Are Are you also deeply uncomfortable with how much of a euphemism that sounds like? That I found my buddy's lizard. I know. <laughs> That's why I went silent. After well, I didn't. I didn't think of that. Was it a bearded dragon? It was a Chinese water dragon. Yeah, it was, it was uh, quite interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That had escaped. You... It was a Chinese water <laughs> dragon that had escaped two months previously. And I don't know if you know much about New Zealand, but it is an island that doesn't have native Chinese water dragons, hence the yeah. name. Yeah, and so, so it's a good thing that you found it. Exactly. And uh, apparently, yeah, anyway, before I get too far into the weeds, I was on a run and there was a lady parked next to the trail I was running. And she was like, I think that's a tuatara. I'm like, I took one look at it and I was just like... Ah, oh, no, that's a Chinese water dragon. That's non. That's non-native. And then I was like, Oh, <laughs> oh, I know whose that is. <laughs> and uh, but we got it back to its rightful owner, so it was happy days. Fantastic, good, good. fantastic. My hero. Yep. Well, thank you guys all so much for being a part of this uh, episode with us, Adam. Thank you so much for coming. Um, we miss hanging out with you for real. We so do. it was it Don't... was very lovely to be a part of this. Well, thank you. you, thank you so much once and, uh, again. And for our four, four listeners that have uh, listened to this podcast, please don't forget to like, subscribe, follow us on uh, on either. Do we have we have the social medias? Yeah, right, and Spotify. We've got Spotify. We've got Twitter. Yep. We just don't have Instagram. So, no, nah, so. that's okay. Overrated. Overrated. Well, again, big thank you to Adam. Thank you to everybody for tuning in. Um, and yeah, hopefully see you guys very soon. Absolutely. Thanks guys. All right. So that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks again to Adam Lee for coming in and presenting his research for us today. The outro song that you're listening to now was written and performed by our very own Al Elder. Big round of applause to him. And that's all. So see you next time, everyone. Bye.